Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will beginning, be beginning my final series in this uh, series I've been calling 20th Century Girls. Uh, we looked at uh, a handful of, of women writers and one anthology of, of science fiction by American women. Um, but I'll be finishing up here with Zora Neale Hurston's uh, works. Not all of them. Uh, the Library of America published two volumes of Zora Neale Hurston's work, one focusing on her nonfiction and one focusing on her fiction. So what do we have to look forward to? Well, first we'll be looking at Mules and Men, which is her general uh, kind of uh, introduction to African-American folklore, but it's got a little bit of Caribbean folklore too, something she was really interested in. Uh, then we have her work, uh, Tell My Horses, which is her deep look at Caribbean folklore and voodoo. Uh, and then we have uh, Dust Tracks uh, on the Road, which is her autobiography. And that's followed by a series of, of articles that she wrote throughout her life, including some of her, her later very controversial um, um, articles. So that's, that makes up the first volume. The second volume looks at her, her fiction writing, and there we'll look at things like uh, Jonah's... Um, uh, what's the name of that... Uh, Jonah's Gordvine. We have, uh, of course, Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, her retelling of the Moses story called Moses, Man of the Mountain. And I, I think there might be another novel in there somewhere or some short stories. So that we're going to be doing that. It's going to take about 15 more episodes. So uh, this series isn't done by a long shot, but um, I am kind of putting an end to it after this this one last this writer but i want to give her a complete reading she is so very important for um mid-century um african-american writing uh, often seen as kind of part of the harlem renaissance but she's really on the tail end of the harlem renaissance you know the you know the harlem renaissance is more seen of the 1920s uh the library of america anthology of of harlem renaissance writings obviously didn't include her because she was all included here but, you know, those are mostly novels of the 20s and early 30s. Um, so, yeah, I guess you could call the her work, which really kind of takes off in the mid-30s part of the Harlem Renaissance, but it's the, really the tail end of it. And she's not as involved in some of those deep debates that really shaped the beginning, early part of the Harlem Renaissance. And, and I may come back and think a little bit about this. Um, I did a whole series on the Harlem Renaissance novels very, very early in the series of this, the, these podcasts. Um, but if, if you listened back there, or I urge you to go back, I, I, I really enjoyed those episodes, actually, doing those. Um, one of the big tensions in the Harlem Renaissance was between people who saw art as politics, art as propaganda, people like Du Bois. Um, you know, he was kind of the most articulate one voicing that opinion that really art should, should represent the best of us and should be really promoting uh you know, equality and the argument of equality. And the best way to do that is to, is to advertise the best of, of that African-Americans had to offer. And then there were others, I would say the majority of these writers, it seems, were interested more in just talking about life as it, as it was. And, you know, in its, you know, all its warts and all, right? 
and that was a big tension in the Harlem Renaissance. And I talked a lot about that in that that series. Um, you know, I don't think I don't get the sense re- reviewing some of this that Zernil Hurston is very consciously being part of this debate, um, but she is on the side of of looking at life as it is. Right, that's why she's interested in folklore, obviously, and not interested in. You know, she's not an overtly political, although there's a lot of politics in her in her writing, as it's hard, you know, every writer has his politics, his or her politics. But, uh, you know, I, I think, especially in, in some of her earlier work, it's a very matter-of-fact description of, of the reality of, of folklore. And and um, that's what I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with her folklore works, Mules and Men and, and uh, Tell My Horse. It's going to take about four episodes. Uh, they're actually more than five, 400 pages if you throw these works together. I think it's closer to 560. But a lot of both of these volumes are songs, are, are appendixes, and different descriptions, spells, and just kind of add-ons, appendixes to folkloric work. Um, so, you know, th- those won't, those don't really fit. Those don't really count in my, the way I'm kind of, kind of conceiving of, of reading about 100 pages per, per episode. So I'll, I'll kind of break my rules a little bit here, but nevertheless, we're going to have a lot of time to 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 study Zora Neale Hurston's works. Um, now, what to say about her? Um, she she got kind of a slow start in her her writing career. It seems I was just reviewing her her um, chronology, the chronology of her life. She was born in let me get this right. Born in 1891, I think that's right. So yeah, 1891, early 1891, and she doesn't write her first novel, Jonas uh, Vinegord, Gordvine, until she doesn't publish it until 1930, uh, 1934, right? So, and that's around the time she publishes Mules and Men, which is her first major work of folklore. Now, she had done quite a lot in the previous decade in essays, in, in some of her folklore work, in, in, in theater, and in, in various things. But she spent a lot of her, her 20s working. Um, her father died in, in 1918, I believe. But anyways, uh, she spent a lot of the 19-teens working various jobs. She doesn't start attending college courses until 19, in, into 1919, when she's she's almost 30 years old. Um, but then she really takes off and starts to get involved in various debates of the Harlem Renaissance. But she very early on got interested in in folklore and got grants and got got research money to actually go to investigate it. So she does a lot of this work in the early 30s. Um, of course, it's a time of the Great Depression. It's a time when many people are interested in collecting folklore. Um, part of the reason for this is, is I mean, partly it's just that people who were born slaves were going to die. <laughs> and there was a greater intensity and interest in getting their stories down and recording it. But a lot also had to do with the Great Depression. Because in 1933, when Roosevelt becomes president and we start to see job programs being implemented, they didn't just they weren't just things like the Civilian Conservation Corps. They also tried to take put writers and give them jobs and, and musicians and people who did theater work and give them jobs. And they did a lot of great work in, in cultural work in the United States at the time, you know, artists painting murals. Um, 
people collecting folk folklore is part of it and collecting slave narratives for instance and and Zora Neale Hurston reading through this I don't think she wasn't funded by the WPA in these projects but she's part of a generation of artists who are starting to investigate this this um this this aspect of african-american life this folkloric aspect and trying to document it and and make sure it's there for for posterity um the introduction to mules and men is actually worth reading even if you want to read the whole book but i actually do recommend this one um you know i, I think a lot of people might be gravitates towards uh, tell my horse because of the voodoo stuff uh although i will say there's voodoo stuff in mules and men too that uh is is fun to look at but this introduction uh, kind of justifies and talks about um, why she wants to collect this folklore and why it's important she does it and why she, you know, and, and she sees feels the need to kind of justify it because there's a bit of voyeurism involved in in collecting this folklore and she's a little bit self-conscious about that. She's self-conscious and she's in the in the text itself, she's fairly self-conscious of her class, the fact that she's coming back educated in a car to these people who are really quite poor they're there but they're the people she grew up with the people she knew from her childhood and then she's going to like record their 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 lies there's that's what they call them their their lies which are basically these these stories they tell and she feels a little self-conscious about it but she has to justify it because that's her job she's doing anthropology and here's a little bit of what she says about this quote folklore is not as easy to collect as it sounds the best source is where there are the least outside influences and these people being unusually underprivileged are the shyest they're the most reluctant at times to reveal that which the soul lives by and the negro in spite of his open-faced laughter his seemingly acquiescence is particularly evasive you see we are a polite people and we do not say to our questioner get out of here we smile and tell him or her something that satisfies the white person because knowing so little about us, he does not know what he's missing. The Indian resists curiosity by a stony silence. The Negro offers a feather bed resistance. That is, we let the probe enter, but never come out again. It gets smothered under a lot of laughter and pleasantries. The theory behind our tactics, the white man is always trying to know into somebody else's business all right i'll set him outside the door of my mind for him to play with and to handle he can read my writings but he sure can't read my mind i'll put this play toy in my hand and he will seize it and go away then i'll say my say and sing my song i knew that even i was going to have some hindrance among strangers but here in ettonville i knew everyone was going to help me so below paltaka i began to feel eager to be there and be kicked that little chivalry right along End quote. So there, she really hits on something really interesting about the role of folklore here, and that it's there's a lot in these stories that she relates in this in this book in this uh, that that make fun of whites, that play with the race line, the color line, that play with the legacy of slavery, the legacy of 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 racial discrimination and violence, right? But they're, they're often told as kind of humorous jokes, and there's something enigmatic about a lot of them. And the way Zora Neale Hurston here seems to suggest it is, a, is that part of this is a bit of a ploy. It's that there's a, an awareness that white people are interested in, in these stories. And so, okay, we're going to embrace that, and we're going to use that, and we're going to 
we're basically going to fuck with them a little bit. That's what she seems to be saying here about that. And she says, like, as someone who's from this town, I can kind of get through that because I know these people and they'll help me. But nevertheless, I still get the feeling that these stories kind of fit into that as in a macro sense, right? Because, um, yes, they're tools of resistance. They're tools of, of, of subversion. They're, they're survival mechanisms in various ways. But to do that, to have that function, they have to... They sort of have to be a little bit dishonest, right? And so I, I think that's a really interesting aspect of this of this of this work. Um, so uh, a little bit more of what she says in his introduction. Um, quote: I thought about the tales I heard as a child, how even the Bible was made over to suit our vivid imagination, how the devil always outsmarted God, and how the over noble hero Jack or John, not John Henry, who occupies the same place in Negro folklore that Casey Jones does in White Lore, and if anything is more recent, outsmarted the devil. Brer Fox, Brer Deer, Brer Gator, Brer Dog, Brer Rabbit, Old Massa and his wife were walking the earth like natural men way back in the days when God himself was on the ground and men could talk with him, end quote. Um, you know, another, uh, another kind of great aspect of that is, you know, the presence of God in these and the presence of biblical stories, but they're set in essentially the Old South. And, you know, that is what the black people who made these stories knew. They didn't have a connection really to Africa. So we'll bring this up again when we look at uh, Tell My Horse. Because obviously there's that discussion in uh, Caribbean folklore about survival of African traditions. And, and maybe you can make a case for the Caribbean. It's harder to make that case for, for the United States um, for a variety of reasons, which I've talked about earlier on this this podcast at various times. Essentially, the slave trade was kind of a cultural um, genocide, um, destroying those contacts, right? Because, I mean, the slave trade ended in 1808, uh, but you still had British people moving to North America. You had Germans, you had others bringing that culture, reinforcing it, keeping those languages alive, keeping those traditions alive, bringing over books, bringing over the religion. All those connections were still there. That wasn't the case for... Africans. And even if the slave trade hadn't ended, you know, people were brought from many different cultures. You know, there's really no such thing culturally, ethnically as Africa, of course. So uh, it was devastating culturally, right? But some people make a case, and Zerlina Hurston does a little bit in, 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 in Tell My Horse, arguing that, yeah, there are some cultural survivals from Africa, right? But, you know, what you have is Christianity here really strong, like these figures of Christianity, Noah, St. Peter, uh, Jesus, not so much. Moses is here a little bit. Noah's all here a lot. Cain, a little bit. Um, you have those, but they're set in the Old South, and the players, the human actors, are, are enslaved men and women. And, you know, and masters are there, like white masters ruling over black slaves are right next to God and Noah and, and St. Peter and the same kind of stories in the same milieu. And it's really, really fascinating to read. It's something she plays with in her book about Moses. As I recall, I haven't gone back to read it in many years, but that is kind of setting the Moses story in black vernacular and in the setting. So it's very much playing with the same idea. And I, I think, um, that's kind of another fascinating aspect you kind of can pull out of this introduction to this book. Um, so what do we have here? The, the book itself is in two parts. The first part is called Folk Tales. 
And these are all come, come from the U.S. South, largely from Florida, where she did her field work. And the second part is called Hoodoo, which I believe is mostly about U.S. Um, remnants of voodoo. And and that, I mean, we, we read Charles Chestnut. We looked at Charles Chestnut's work, and he's interested in the, the gooferine, right? The, the goofer grapevine, if you remember that story. Um Certainly, magic was part of this folklore, right? And I, I think that's what she's she's getting at there. But um, it's her second book that really gets into the Caribbean folklore. But she was studying both in the early, in the late twenties and early thirties. She was collecting information on both, and she went to like Nassau in the Bahamas. She went to other places in the Caribbean, I think, and she spent a lot of time in the South collecting these stories. So um, there, these are two separate, very separate novels, but they sort of there's a bridge there in. In the examination of, of, of voodoo. All right. The other important thing to say about the structure of this this book is it's not just a series of folk tales. Um, there there's dozens actually. I didn't even try counting it. Um, there's ten chapters. Each chapter has between two and I want to say ten, eleven, twelve little vignettes, little stories. So kind of a, a traditional folklorist might just collect these stories and organize them in some way, you know, and retell them, however, in whatever language, whichever way you want, um, and then just kind of present the stories. She doesn't do that. Um, she, she had collected these a while ago, so she had them and she was showing them to other people. But what she did and really makes this this book distinctive is she, she really tells a narrative about her coming home and coming back to this place she grew up in to... Um, to Eatonville, Maitland Eatonville. That's the, the the two towns. Just crosses this Maitland Eatonville town line. That's how the book begins. And she talks to these people that she grew up around. She talks to them and she visits the different parts of their life. She visits their um, like the sawmill and she sees some of their. She sees them have a party, for, you know, and she just goes through various aspects of their of their life while talking to them. And as they talk, they tell stories, which they call lies. They, they, one of the first things you read when you pick up this book is them complaining like, why, Zora, why are you interested in our lies? You know, they're just stupid. They're just things we tell each other. They don't really matter. And she's like, oh no, they matter a lot. People are interested in it and I'm here to collect them. And, you know, and how much of this is fanciful? How much of this is, is made up? I'm not sure. But, you know, I think something like this happened. You know, I'm pretty sure, you know, that she went back to her hometown, talked to these people, collected their stories, and while doing so, kind of reconnected to this culture on, on a more immediate level. So the folklore kind of reaches backward. Often, not all of them go back to slavery. Um, some go back to the Bible. Um, most go back to the experience of slavery in various ways, as, as so much African-American folklore does especially from this period. So it goes back to there. It also goes back to the Bible. Some of it is more recent and dealing more with uh, the experience of Jim Crow. Um, you know, this is, these are being recorded, collected in the early 1930s at the depths of, 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 of Jim Crow segregation in the South. Um, but by telling the story in a contemporary sense, you know, having this coming out of people's mouths right now, it, it's very much contemporary. It's very much a living text. It's not just dead 
um, again, that's like if you just collected the folklore and said, oh, I heard these stories, these oral histories, these, these oral traditions, I should say, these oral traditions, I've collected them and I've anthologized them and I put up my nice introduction and you just read it for academic purposes. She could have done that. And it seems she was going to do that initially too, but other people encouraged her to have a more popular audience. She should uh, ground it more in this actual living culture. I think that's what's really kind of striking about this this book, and I think that's why a lot of people still like to come back to it. It's still fairly popular, as far as I understand. It's it's not in public domain in the in the U.S. as far as I know. There's, um, yeah, that's why I have been able to find a good audiobook version of it without having to pay for it. But you know, it's still a fairly popular work, and you know, maybe not as popular as Eyes Are Watching God. That's what she's most known for, but. You know, people still come back to this. And I think that's one reason is it really, really does feel like a living text being unfolded. And, you know, about half of it, I would say about half of it is her just going on this kind of a journey back to her hometown, talking to these people, picking up these stories, you know, picking their brains, going to their going to the mills, going to the lumber yards, going to, you know, dance halls, you know, just documenting this life as it's being lived but at the same time pulling back and and collecting these stories and throwing them in there as well the index the table of context of the novel sorry keeps i keep wanting to say novel this is a work of folklore uh work of nonfiction, folklore collection um the table of contents you know lists the 10 chapters in part one which is folk tales but each subheading is actually a little bit of the folklore that she collects, right? So, um, so for this chapter one, has two stories in it: John, the, uh, John and the Frog, and the Witness of the Jonestown Flood in Heaven. These aren't these. There's no subheadings in chapter one that that highlight when they start. There's just uh, indent and uh, a little bit of different formatting, and suddenly you're in one of these stories. So you're reading this very casual tale of her visiting her hometown, and then you're jumped into this folklore and. You'll read it for a while, and then it's almost like you're there because at the end of the story, someone else will speak in and comment on that story and say, oh, I have a better story, or or I've heard it a different way, or, or I don't like how you, you, you told this, or whatever. And then there'll be a little bit more contemporary chit-chatting, and then you'll be jumped back into another story. Um, now, you know, there's different themes in some of these different chapters, I would say some are much more about the experience of slavery. Some are kind of animal stories. Some are really stories about class and labor. Um, you know, but I don't think you want to read this with too much sweating. You know, what each, which point she's trying to make in each chapter, because it's just a journey you go through, and you just enjoy reading these these stories. Now, obviously, it's told especially the, the storytelling part, but also much of the rest is dialogue as well. So most of it's told in African-American vernacular English of that time. If you haven't read that, uh, it takes some getting used to. Obviously, the, the N-word is used quite a lot in this work. If you're bothered by that, you gotta be, you got to be aware that that's just part of the language that was, that was being used at the time among when African-Americans told these stories um, to each other. Um, you know, but I mean, beyond that, just she writes in dialect the same way that Charles Chestnut wrote in, in dialect. So if you're troubled with that, if you had troubles with like uh, the, the, the conjure woman, the, the language used there, 
you might struggle with this a little bit too. This is a little bit easier, I think, than Charles Chestnut's version, but it's almost all dialogue or storytelling spoken in African-American dialect. This is one reason I wanted to find an audiobook because, you know, it's, it's usually it's much easier to listen to that than to, than to, to read it, right? Because, you know, the spellings aren't always consistent and that. But Zora Neale Hurston it's, does it pretty well that it's not that hard to, to voice out if you, if you need to. So I'm used to it by now, but maybe you're not. If, 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 if you're not, just bear that in mind. Nevertheless, I really, really do recommend picking up uh, Mules and Men and, and both of her folklore works, obviously. I think they're, they're both great. Um, but with that out of the way, I've already give, taken up 25 minutes, so I'm not going to go through chapter by chapter like I normally do, but I am going to talk about some of the, the stories that really struck me and... And a handful of them are some of the themes that I think are really key in this work. So, for instance, chapter two um, has seven different stories in it, seven different folklore, and it's all told in that um, way I just described, um, where you're kind of with Zora Neale Hurston, she's exploring these these communities, and then she flip to these these folklore. But one thing they they're all kind of about religion in various ways. Um, um, you know, but they deal with various questions. Um, for instance, two that are kind of paired right together is how the church came to be split up and why Negroes are, are black. So let's um, take a closer look at these. Now, the story of why the church was, was split up. Um, now, a lot of these stories go back to biblical times. Like Jesus shows up somewhat. This is one of the ones where Jesus does show up. But again, Noah is more common. Like the, or just God is 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 just more much more common figure that shows up in these, but basically the story is, um, it's kind of a, a retelling of the Peter this the, on this rock I'll build your church, idea. But it's coming out of the reality of religion in the American South, where you have all this Protestant factionalism, right? Because you know it's one of the things I, I teach uh, human geography a little bit in in China, and one thing that you know, students have a really time hard, hard time getting their head around is just all these different Protestant churches. It's just baffling to them how many there are. I remember there's something like there's more pro, there's more churches in the Protestant faith than there are like sentences in the Bible or something like that, right? And of course, many of them are in the United States, um, and many of them were just in the South, right? The Baptists versus the Methodists and the Congregationalists and all the others, right? So the way the story is told is is uh, it has to do with uh, the, these rocks being turned into bread to feed the hungry masses, but Peter's carrying around this huge rock, and and Christ eventually, instead of continuing to carry that rock, turns it into the bread to feed the hungry masses, and then all that's left are these other rocks that the, the other disciples have, so they just sort of get glued together, and Jesus says, oh, this is the rock on which I'll build my church. It's actually a fairly um, good joke if you think about the the way the church went from being somewhat unified, at least that's what Jesus would have wanted if you read the story that way. Um, but it broke up in all these different, in all these different faiths. So it's kind of an origin story. It's an origin story of, of, of Christian factionalism, right? And then there's a little chit chat about this. And they, they start to talk about skin color, which is, of course, it was a major obsession of the Harlem Renaissance writers, right? The color line passing, skin color, all that kind of stuff. Well, I talked about that in that series. If you read those novels, you, it comes up a whole lot. Um, but yeah, I think I can read this whole story. 
Um, long before they got through making the Atlantic Ocean and hauling the rocks for the mountains, God was making up the people. But he didn't finish them all at one time. I'm compelled to say that some folks was walking around this town right now ain't finished yet and never will be. Well, he gives out eyes one day. All the nations come up and got their eyes. Then he gives out teeth and so on. Then he sets a day to give out color. So 7 o'clock that morning, everyone was due to get their color except the... Which is the N-word, sorry. Uh, so God gave everyone the color and they went on off. Then he sat there for three hours and one half and no black people. It was getting hot and God wanted to get his work done and he said to cool. So he sent the angels, Rayfield and Gabriel, to go get him so he could tend to some more business. They hunted all over heaven till they find the colored folks, all stretched out, sleep on the grass under the tree of life. So Rayfield woke him up and told him God wanted him. They all jumped up and ran up to, to the throne and they were so scared they might miss something they began to push and shove one another, bumping against all the angels and turning over footstools. They even had one of them all pushed one-sided. So God hollered, get back, get back. And they misunderstood him and thought he said, get black. And they've been black ever since. Now that's the story and it's told in a fairly um, comical manner. And we're told this in the very next line when we flip back into the, the the contemporary narrative, Gene rolled his eyes into one corner of his head. You know, the people listening to it don't take these stories as seriously as many people who read this folklore do. And I think that's something that Zora Neale Hurston is having a lot of fun with in this story. And it goes back to something she said in the introduction, that that these stories get told and white people take them seriously and, and see them as profound. And when they're not really always that profound, they're, they're just jokes. They're Sometimes they're just... They're just stories that get passed around for laughs and and humor. And sometimes it's about who can tell the more ridiculous story. And there's moments of that in this anthology as well, where it's kind of people are trying to best each other in the more ridiculous story. Right. And I'm thinking back again to Charles Chestnut's in The Conjure Woman, where you have the... Uh, I forget the character's name, but the former slave who is kind of just living on that land ends up working for this white guy who buys this land. You know, he tells all these stories about oh, magic, about folklore, and he's always doing this just to kind of get his way. But he knows that white people are going to listen to his stories, and he knows that white people are interested in this stuff and will take it more seriously than they probably should. And it's a kind of a way to take a little bit of advantage of them. And that's definitely taking place, I think, in this, this anthology of, 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 of folklore. Of course, many of these stories do involve people outsmarting God, outsmarting the devil, outsmarting white masters. Um, you know, I'd say about a good third of these stories are connected in one way or another to that, that theme. Although it's not always one way. Like there's a, there's a story where, where a, a slave is praying to God to kill the white people. And the master hears this. And I think that's another kind of sub-theme in here is like the masters are always, the, the white people are always watching what the black people are doing and keeping tabs on them and, and kind of are aware of them. That happens quite a lot. And then, you know, try to make fun of them and, and play with these beliefs and these traditions. Um, you know, but again, I think this is, this is the f folklorist. This is the, the tellers of these stories Again, kind of playing with it to do that white people take these stories so seriously. And, and so, you know, we're going to pretend they, 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 they believe everything that, 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 
that happens even within the stories this is kind of a motif of the white person taking what the black people say too seriously but anyways he's he's praying for god to kill the white people he he goes a second day and prays again and this time the master hears him so the master kind of goes and throws some rocks at him uh to kind of i don't know just to be a jerk uh while he's praying and the slave jumps up and says you know god can't you tell black people from white people it's it's really really funny and it's it's really uh, that was one of the moments i kind of laughed out loud while, while reading this um there are more serious ones like there's a there's a scene kind of where you get the trickster gods you got a lot of the brer rabbit brer gator stories here too which are all kind of based on trickster mythology American versions of the trickster trickster god, um, but one is just where a guy is going to be hung, uh, a slave is going to be punished and hung and killed, and to save himself, he has one of his friends climb up the tree with matches, and to, he says, "Light them when I whenever I pray." And so, as he's about to be hung, he gives his last words and he prays to God that, you know, if God, if you're going to punish the white men for doing this to me, you know, send down lightning. And of course, then the match is lit. And this happens a few times. And then, you know, he, he gets to gets to live um, because they're able to trick the white people. So it's not just them, though. There's a great story, rather long one, where a guy loses his soul to, to Satan um, and eventually wins it back by kind of wooing Satan's daughter and running away. Um you know, but the getting the the taking advantage of the devil, taking advantage of the master, and to, or sometimes kids taking advantage of God are all um, come up a lot in this story. These stories. All right, so um, I think that's going to be it for now. Uh, I'm not going to talk through about each of these stories, but um, they're really really fun and and they're worth reading. Um, what I'm going to do uh, in the next episode is I'm going to finish up my thoughts about mules and men. There's a few more chapters of the folk stories to, to cover, maybe three or four. And then there's the part on, on African-American um, voodoo. Here it's hoodoo, H-O-O-D-O-O, essentially just voodoo. Um, and then a little bit on conjure stories, rituals. That's really interesting stuff. Formula for, you know, actually... F- how to cast spells great stuff um and we'll try to make some sense of that stuff too so um for now uh let me know what you thought of mules and men if you've read it or what you know or or if you have any questions about zernial hurston that will be coming up um let me know if you have any questions at all or any comments at all please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com um i have a new microphone. I I'm with my daughter. I bought her this microphone. It's a it's a blue Yeti. I bought her it for her own little podcasting YouTubing, um, and thankfully I get to take advantage of it. Um, so hopefully the sounds better at least for these episodes. I'm going to try to do as many episodes as I can with this with this microphone. Before I'm back to my snowball, which isn't working out as well as I had hoped these days, I'm going to have to upgrade it. I think pretty soon, um, but. Anyways, glad that can have pretty good sound for a while. So anyways, that's going to be it. Next episode, I will do part two, the second half of Mules and Men, uh, in the last hundred pages or so, uh, and look at some of the appendix material and finish up my thoughts about this. This really, really interesting work. Um, really pick it up. Read it if you have the chance. It's great. 
So that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. It must be the hellfire captain. Anna told her, must be the hellfire captain. Ha, he had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A cool, cool boy, people hollering.